like a lot of other people. I looked at joining the Navy when I was at the age of 17 because okay. I didn't really have a lot of opportunities. There were barriers just because mm-hmm. I'm from kind of like a low-income family. My entire enlistment, I was what is called a, a plank owner. So that means okay. I was the first crew member on what is the USS America. So that's an LHA, which is an amphib. We had about 1,100 people on it, and we moved okay. 3,000 Marines all over the place. One of the roles that I had in the Navy was as a career counselor. And I like being able to do things that would benefit people and mm-hmm. things that would, you know, being able to provide services to, to help others. Okay. And I thought that if I could take that on a micro level and then just, like, kind of blow it up on the macro, and it's like, what if you could help out a community of people or mm-hmm. a city, you know? Okay. And so when I was going underway, it didn't take much looking at mm-hmm. that kind of thought. I stumbled upon urban planning. Howdy, you're listening to the Think Brasses podcast. We host conversations with locals, politicians, and policy experts to help families thrive in Brasses County, Texas. So when you're thinking about how to make your community better, just remember, think local, think Brasses. This is the Think Brazos podcast. Today, we're joined by Tyler Utsler, who is a former student worker for Habitat for Humanity. And so we're really happy to have him on the podcast. And we want to talk a little bit about his background, what he plans to do, and a number of things. So welcome, Tyler. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start off with your background. First of all, you worked for Habitat for about a year while going to school at Texas A&M. But before that, how did you get to the point of coming to this university? I know you told me you were in the Navy for a number of years. So I guess what they would call a non-traditional student. But then you ended up studying something very specific and diverse from what you did in the Navy. So let's Mm -hmm. hear a little bit about your background. Sure. So like a lot of other people, I looked at joining the Navy when I was at the age of 17 because I didn't really have a lot of opportunities. There were barriers just Mm -hmm. because I'm from kind of like a low income family. So I looked at joining the Navy as kind of a way to be able to get more opportunity for myself, Mm -hmm. learn a trade, get an education, do those kinds of things. So I enlisted for six years as an electronics technician. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I went all over the place, got the opportunity to to learn a lot, see a lot, meet a lot of people. And then by the time I got out, uh, I looked back at my service and I worked for about a year as a contractor working Mm -hmm. for what is now known as the Naval Information Warfare Center as a technical representative for satellite communication systems. And so, yeah, like from an outsider perspective, it is not really the most lateral perspective. You know, were you on a ship both when you were in the Navy and as a contractor? Yeah. So my entire enlistment, I was what is called a a plank owner. So that means I was the first crew member on what is the USS America. So that's an LHA, which is an amphib. We had about 1,100 people on it, and we moved 3,000 Marines all over the place. Oh, wow. But six years, again, as an electronics technician, and then, like, when you're at six years is also not the most standard contract. Most Mm -hmm. people do four years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to do six because of the additional two years of school that I had to do to be trained as an electronics technician. Okay. I was looking at re-enlisting, and, you know, I decided, well, if it's six years, if I re-enlist, I'll be at 10 years. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope where you just kind of keep going. Got it. So I decided that six years is where I wanted to end that time, and I wanted to look elsewhere. So again, like I said, I I worked as a contractor for a little bit, and just going to places that needed assistance with their communications, you know, the Coast Guard in South Carolina, San Francisco, Japan, and doing all those things for about a year. That's awesome. And, you know, kind of in that time frame, I was like evaluating what I was doing as to whether or not I actually like was enjoying it is what Mm -hmm. I wanted to be doing. 
And, uh, it didn't really take that much, you know, like looking at it that I realized that I wasn't really passionate about fixing mm -hmm. electronics and that there were elements that I enjoyed about the Navy that was no longer in my job. And, uh, I thought, you know, like one of the roles that I had in the Navy was as a career counselor. And I like being able to do things that would benefit people mm -hmm. and things that would, you know, being able to provide services to, to help others. Okay. And I thought that if I could take that on a micro level and then just like kind of blow it up on the macro and it's like, what if you could help out a community of people or a city, you know? Okay. And so like when I was going underway, like it didn't take much looking at mm -hmm. that kind of thought, you know, or I stumbled upon urban planning. You did that through reading books on the ships, right? Yeah. So like reading Jane Jacobs mm -hmm. somewhere in the South China Sea and, you know, <laughs> not your standard reading, you know, right, when you're at right. those places, but uh, yeah, read it and I felt really like motivated by yeah. it and the fact that, you know, you could actually make a difference for marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny, like, again, because I graduated high school when I was a junior and I went right into the Navy. So I never took the ACT or the SAT. And so, like, I realized that I wanted to go to school. And mm -hmm. so I was at the age of 25 at this point, you know. So I studied up on my arithmetic and all these things to take the ACT and wow. took the ACT in San Diego. But all the places where the official test is administered is high schools, oh, high schools, yeah. high schools, and San Diego State University. And so you're the old guy, huh? Yeah. So like, and it was just kind of funny because yeah. when I was at, I took the test like a Saturday morning at SDSU's campus when it was like completely dead. Oh, and nice. All these people are just like stopping me and asking me like, excuse me, sir, do you know where the ACT is? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm looking for the same place you are. <laughs> That's but, um, hilarious. You know, and that was five years ago and now wow. I'm studying urban planning at Texas A&M. When did you come to Texas A&M? I moved here in the fall of 2020 or no 2019 excuse me mm -hmm. so the semester I started my first semester here was spring of 2020 yeah so that okay. was right before uh, COVID happened everything and, moved online. And you're about to graduate or you have graduated? I am in my final semester. That's right what now. I was thinking you know that's the first thing that caught our attention when you came and applied for Habitat is you know some of the things that Habitat for Humanity does with its home building and with its advocacy efforts overlaps sometimes with things like urban planning. And so yeah. it caught our attention. We brought you on board for about a year and you did some research that I want to talk about in a minute. But before I do, another interesting thing that we found is, is that you're studying urban planning. You had a vehicle for a little bit mm -hmm. and then you decided in Bryan College Station to go vehicle this yeah. and actually ride your bike yeah. everywhere, right? Pretty yeah. much. Mm -hmm. How many years was that and how was it? I think it ended up being just a hair north of like two years was wow. about the amount of time that I did without having a vehicle. And it was just one of those things where like, I just simply, I just couldn't afford it. Just the wear and tear on the vehicle that I had, you know, I owned the, the title mm -hmm. and all that, but yeah, I decided to uh, just use my bicycles. I had, I have three bicycles. I think is what I've got now. And mm -hmm. I just would rotate them out. Oh. I've got family who does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Granted, they live in places that are a lot more, uh, bicycle oriented, like right. Indianapolis that have all these trails. I'm fortunate to live pretty, you know, relatively close to the campus. And there are some, some pretty great bike lanes. You know, the infrastructure is present. And as long mm -hmm. as you're wearing a helmet and you're paying attention, yeah. like it's totally, in my experience, it's a lot faster. You don't have mm -hmm. to deal with it. And you know, yeah. it's a, it's a good way to sneak in some exercise. Right. Right. And you know, our offices are in Bryan, in Midtown in Bryan, so mm -hmm. not far, far North, but what was it like to commute to work? Um, cause you, you were living mid South yep. college station. Mm -hmm. And then I don't want to say details, but 2818 kind of area. <laughs> yeah. And so then biking all the way to Midtown in Bryan, mm -hmm. was there anything that stuck out to you that was 
better, worse? What was that whole experience like? I think that with biking, it's not so much like taking a car yeah. and that, you know, the most direct route. Uh-huh. I think with biking, you've got to be a little bit more prudent and planning out your route and right. just being mindful of where, you know, where the bike lane ends, where there's merging, you know, like mm-hmm. where there's high amounts of traffic. So I would try to commute through campus as much as I could just because I view that as kind of more of a safer spot just because okay. there's, there's no vehicle traffic. But, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of foot traffic. Yeah. That kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. But it wasn't that bad. It's just, you know, again, just having to plan it out. It, it gets easier the more you do it. Yeah. Did you learn anything about or have any ideas as far as, I guess, areas of town or streets that could be better or was it surprisingly easy? Well, I made like a very conscious effort to, to try to avoid mm-hmm. Texas, like, yeah. just because that's, uh, I see some people do it and they are a lot braver than I, mm. like that is just, that is a street that I am just not really willing to tackle because yeah. it just feels a little too congested mm. and you just feel particularly mortal when, yeah, you're, when you're right. on a bicycle like, uh-huh. trying to, trying to cross there. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, you did that for a couple of years. Now mm-hmm. you're ready to graduate. Um, Hopefully. Yeah, (laughs) I I have no doubt. But I guess what I wanted to ask is, what are you thinking going forward following graduating here? So that that is a very hot question. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking to go into. No, 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 no. Um, no, uh, graduate school. Like Mm -hmm. most definitely is what I'm looking at. You know, I've I've had uh, the privilege of working with some some very like fantastic professors, and uh, I've been involved with several research Mm -hmm. projects and. Graduate school is, is very appealing to me. And so now I'm just taking a look at whether I want to go into getting my master's in urban planning, mm-hmm. continuing the studies that I'm doing right now, or if I want to complement that with something like a master's degree in public affairs mm-hmm. that could be offered at the Bush School, for instance. So okay. a master's degree, I think, is what's next for me. Okay, great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I got a couple of uh, topics I wanted to go over with you, both kind of connect to what you've been studying. But the first is is your work with Habitat. One of the projects I put you on, which I feel bad about it now because it was such a huge research endeavor to put you as an undergrad student on it, but I think you did a pretty good job with open source research. Can we talk about the project studying the origins of zoning in Bryant. Yeah. And yeah, don't feel bad about it. It was great, you know, to get the, to how the libraries work and that, mm-hmm. that helped me out through my education like, okay. immensely. But so yeah, that, that was a very fun project. It was just looking at like news media analysis, basically just mm-hmm. trying to see what led up to Brian adopting zoning because they didn't do it until 1989. You know, when that's, I forget the exact year. That, that's very late compared yeah, to a lot of like, So why did Brian wait until recent, you know, mm-hmm. like recently, you know, relatively mm-hmm. it was relatively. recent, you know, like why did they wait that long? Just going through and looking at old uh, city council meetings that are, that are available online. I went to, to the Evans Library on campus and was taking okay. a look at uh, their microfilm because the Eagle isn't digitalized for that time, mm. or at least they, they weren't. Uh, Eagle newspaper, yeah. Yeah, at mm-hmm. the time when I was looking, they didn't have everything available online. So I had to go through microfilm and actually like look through everything wow. one at a time. And okay. So I did that just for the, the snapshot of the decade. And what okay. I found was that, yeah, like in the 60s, it was put up for a vote. And the population of Bryan said, no, we don't want zoning. Mm-hmm. And then it was shot down and then it started showing its head again up in like in the early 80s. And there was mm-hmm. a lot of meetings about it. And ultimately what the, the, the final product ended up being is that citizens were informed of it. Mm-hmm. They were aware of it. And there was a, a lot of outspoken people who did. So they not, would come to the council and speak. Yes. Yeah. Planning and zoning. Okay. And again, you know, this is all information that I found just by looking at the city council minutes mm-hmm. from Brian and then going through and looking at news media analysis for that decade. And 
the city of Bryan adopted zoning in 1989 without a referendum. So it was put to without a vote. And, oh, okay. and then they enacted zoning. Okay. So they gave the public an opportunity to speak, but they did not go back through the process of referendum, is what you're saying. And having studied urban planning, you know, very few cities, it seems, don't have zoning of some sort, mm-hmm. at least in Texas. Uh, Houston is a big outlier mm-hmm. where they don't. And it sounds to me like it's a similar story as with Houston, where the people kept voting it down. So I found that an, an interesting part of the research. But you having studied urban planning, there's probably a lot of conversations in classes about zoning. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a short overview of what zoning is and what its purpose is supposed to be? Okay. So zoning, its purpose is to, or at least what it is viewed now without going into like so much of the right. history of it. Its purpose is to give places character and to remove places that are compatible. Mm. And so, like, you have single-family zoning, and then you have, like, commercial zoning, and it's just to create basically just different sections of of a city. And they were adopting that, I think, largely just because they needed to have, in order to get funding for someone like the downtown Bryan revitalization. Wow. Hold up, hold up. So they could not get some of this funding to revitalize Bryan Unless they had zoning, I assume that it's federal. It's one of those things where, you know, I would have to like revisit, but I remember that was yeah. like one of those things that just, it seemed to me like it was one of those things that just kind of kept re- reoccurring where it was Dang. like they needed to be able to have some sort of comprehensive zoning plan in order to be you know, like eligible for some of these, okay. uh, you know, these grants and these funding opportunities that would wow. be available to them. So. Yeah. Interesting. So you have to separate your people in order to get funds like that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's different ways that yeah, you, can, yeah. you can enact zoning, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have to go strictly single family yeah. zoning and commercial. Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, from what little I've read on it, it does seem like the initial purpose of zoning was like health and, and safety stuff, right? Like keeping the industrial stuff out of neighborhoods. That kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, oh. There's also racial origins in terms mm. of just having racial segregation being okay. uh, a topic of zoning. And that's how redlining actually first occurred. You know, mm. like the redlining of neighborhoods, It's uh, it does have racial origins just wow. in terms of segregation. Okay, okay. man, that's that's interesting. So Brian does this and, and they were able to re- revitalize downtown, which is really, I think, a good thing. I think what yeah. Brian has done there is fantastic. But yeah, we just felt it was an interesting story. And uh, with some of the work Habitat does, we needed to understand a little bit of how we got to here. And so I hope that one day we can keep working together and get some of this written down. But we wanted to at least get it on recording. Okay. Anything else with that? topic you wanted to touch on because i got one more no okay so with this one i wanted to go into something that's a little more present day and try and get a little bit of your expertise from the urban planning side on it something that is working its way through not the city council yet but planning and zoning they have sections of the city of Bryan that are what we call residential district 5,000, which is 5,000 square foot lots. Mm -hmm. It appears that some people, maybe in staff, maybe the folks on planning and zoning, aren't super happy with the current configuration of residential district 5,000 square foot lots. Mm. They're trying to make some changes. We don't exactly know what is going to happen from this, but I did want to ask you, you know, if they were successful in, say, 
massively changing or even eliminating 5,000 square foot lots in exchange for larger ones. Do you think that's a good idea or not? And any other thoughts you might have? If they were to increase, Mm -hmm. my my gut instinct is that's not a good idea. That's just from what everything that I have read from it, that seems kind of counterintuitive and is taking an opposite step that a lot of pro-growth cities are taking Hmm. for issues combating affordability. You say the purpose is affordability as far as trying to increase a little bit that density. I know that Houston has a very small minimum lot size. And does it seem that other cities are kind of going that route, like trying to reduce it? Yeah. So like recently, within the past couple of weeks, the city of Austin has passed a preliminary measure to reduce their minimum lot size from, it was yeah, yeah a little over 5,000 square feet, but it's square feet now. And the city of Dallas, their city council has actually recently talked, and again, in the past couple of weeks, talked about reducing it down to maybe 1,250 square feet or 12 or 1500 square feet in that ballpark. But there's a really interesting study that I think talks about minimum lot sizes and, Mm -hmm. you know, minimum lot sizes. What that is, is like, it's what it sounds. That's the minimum lot size that's required in order for you to build a home on on a lot. Right. And so there was a study done by the Mercatus Center Mm -hmm. and they've showed something that I think was really interesting. Taking a look at four cities in Texas. Mm -hmm. I think it was like Pflugerville, Round Rock, Frisco, and Pearland. They were taking a look at like, you know, how much does minimum lot sizes constrain Mm -hmm. housing in an area? Yeah, yeah. And overwhelmingly, like if you were to chart out all the lots, Mm -hmm. almost everybody is buying at the minimum lot size. Mm -hmm. Nobody is buying more than they need to. So when a developer is developing a subdivision, they're at that, say, 5,000 square foot per. Yeah. And they they had a, a way of describing it in a way that I thought like really does a good job of explaining what minimum lot sizes is and mm-hmm. how they can be viewed as maybe not the best things, right? So if you wanted to go to the grocery store and you wanted to buy like an apple as mm-hmm. or any other produce, right? You want to buy a pear, you want to buy an orange, whatever. You can buy one at a time. Mm-hmm. You are able to do that. But if like minimum lot size requirements said that in order for you to buy one apple, like you have to buy a minimum of five apples. <laughs> so like if, for people that are yeah. just wanting one apple in the first place, they now have to buy five apples. Um, so what you get to see is that people are buying five apples, not because they want five apples, but because they just want the one apple, but they don't have the ability to. So you're going to see an increase in people buying whoa. the minimum requirement. And so if you're increasing the minimum lot size, you're increasing the amount of apples people have to buy. It's just going to increase housing values. It's going to increase social segregation. It encourages sprawl. It would be interesting to see, like, why they would want to be increasing their, yeah. their minimum lot sizes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. For the record, we're not trying to attack any city or municipality. I was just really curious about what you thought on that. So, lastly, what I want to talk about is give you an opportunity to say anything else about your experience with Texas A&M, with Habitat, um, any other things that we missed during the conversation? Yeah, I'd just like to take this, this space to just say thank you for, you know, for having me on as being a student worker for you for that time. Because I think that coming out of like, you know, that initial year of COVID mm-hmm. and being able to, to have something in planning that was really more like hands-on and being involved with these projects, it spurred a lot of my interest in housing affordability. And I don't think I would really be considering like grad school without those kind of initial experiences that I had. Yeah. So, so thank you. And it's been great. And, you know, taking classes on affordable housing and just being able to, yeah, you know, reading Jane Jacobs in the South China Sea, seeing that, you know, things can happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we enjoyed it. And if there's ever another time that you want to come back on board with Habitat, we'd be happy to. But I think you've got a great future ahead of you. And yeah, we do appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, thanks. 
The Think Brass's podcast is brought to you by Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity. Our mission is a community where everyone can afford a home they're proud of. Habitat is a 501c3 charitable organization, so we do not make political endorsements. If you'd like to support our work in the community, you can make a tax-deductible donation online at habitatbcs.org. The Think Brasses podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and on our website at thinkbrasses.org. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel if you prefer to watch videos of our conversations. Thanks for listening, and just remember, think local, think Brasses.